Thank you, Jill. And as she pointed out, this is the first uh, Sunday of Advent. And Advent is a season of, of waiting. We're waiting for, for Christmas, of course, to, and the celebration of the coming of Jesus. But we're also waiting for our Messiah to come again. And knowing that Jesus' birth, it was, it was just the beginning that, of our hope. That our hope is yet to be fully consummated. And so as we wait, we, we, we wait eagerly. We wait expectantly. And it is, it's, it's kind of a, a, a great and sad irony that this time is often marked by cluttered busyness and hurried restlessness. And all of the mess that comes with that, like impatience and irritability. We need to recalibrate our hearts. And I think that Advent can help us if we take it seriously. Let us repent by slowing down a bit. May we look and listen and linger in the presence and the goodness of our Savior. I think it is a great blessing to kick off Advent by reflecting on our hope. Because the expression of hope, it's waiting. Pastor Tim and I, as we prayed and thought about this series, we know that we know it's, too, it's, it's all too easy to simply look at the themes of Advent or at Christmas in general as just nice ornamental truths that we enjoy the thought of momentarily and like that they are there, but they don't really make a difference to us. And so we wanted this Advent series to point to what Advent themes look like in our lives when they are lived out, when we really internalize them. As we hope, we wait. Waiting on the Lord is an important and prevalent theme throughout the Scriptures. So so what does waiting look like for the Christian? And that passage that Jill read for us is what I'll be preaching from. And it asks this question in such an important and powerful way, if you caught it. He talks about certain aspects of our great hope, and then he asks, because of this, what sort of people ought you to be? This is the question we're asking during this Advent series. Since all of these things are true, what sort of people ought you to be? Peter seems to think, which means the Holy Spirit thinks, that the reality of our hope should have a corresponding formative effect on our souls. That if we have a certain kind of hope, we should become certain kinds of people. A certain kind of person. So what I want to do is is look at this text to see what kind of hope we have and then see what kind of people We ought to be as we wait for it. But first, would you bow your heads with me in prayer? And let's just quickly ask God's blessing on this time. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So, Let's begin by seeing exactly what our hope is that Peter talks about. Because in verse 13, he says, According to his promise, we are waiting for 
new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there is our hope, as Peter talks about it, a new creation in which righteousness dwells. But how do we get there? Well, earlier in this chapter, he says that he's talking about the the promise of his coming. The promise that Jesus is coming again. So Jesus is going to come, and when he comes, Peter says, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. And here, Peter uses the image of fire again. That what exists now will be burned up to make way for heavens and new earth. Now, I preached a sermon two weeks ago uh, about Peter's use of fire imagery, if you remember, if you were here, if you heard that. So we know what Peter means by that, don't we? When he uses image of fire, it's purification. When Peter talks about fire, it doesn't destroy everything. It only destroys the worthless stuff. And by doing so, it purifies what is valuable And that's what he says will happen to the whole of creation on the coming day of judgment. That when the universe passes through the fire of God's judgment, it is purified in a transformation that makes all things new. Which is what Revelation says, that God makes all things new. Not that he makes all new things, but that he makes all things new. There is continuity between this creation and the new creation. That's why Paul says that one day creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. If it were just done away with, that's not freedom, that's annihilation. No, God is going to restore and transform and purify all of creation into a new creation. To understand this really hard-to-understand idea, Paul gives us a metaphor in 1 Corinthians 15. In that chapter, Paul's trying to help us uh, understand, he's trying to help this church that he's talking to understand the most glorious part of this new creation, the resurrection of human beings. And he gives an illustration of a seed which is sown into the earth and dies, in a sense, but then comes to new life as something far greater. And there's continuity there, right, between a seed and a plant. They're the same, but they are also very different. I remember on our first year uh, of our first year anniversary of marriage, Audrey and I took a trip to South Carolina, <clears throat> and we visited a tree called the angel oak. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it or heard about it, but it is magnificent. And I, I stared at that tree for like 45 minutes. I just I looked at it and, and walked around it and soaked in the glory of it, just enjoying God's amazing creativity until I uh, left out of kindness for my incredibly patient wife. I loved that tree. Loved it. And I hope you see it one day. Um, it, it's really hard to describe But all around that tree were thousands of tiny little acorns that it had had produced. And I thought about taking one to plant my own little angel oak, and uh, I wouldn't see it become what it would become one day, but I, I ended up not doing it. But I did think about how that magnificent tree was once one of those, one of those tiny acorns. And if I, could have, if I could have somehow talked to that acorn and tried to tell it what it one day would become, 
I think it would have a hard time believing me and wrapping its head around that. That acorn and that tree, they have the same DNA, are made of the same stuff, are in a sense the same creature. But also, the tree is a new creation. Could an acorn host a whole ecosystem of other plants and animals and draw thousands of people to travel to behold it? No. But could it someday? Yes. And this is the hope of the universe. This is the hope for you and for me. This is the hope we share in because of Jesus. You see, this this fire of judgment day will be both wrath, yes, and love. Because there was a day long before where God's wrath and love met perfectly. On the cross of Calvary, where God confronted what is evil And Jesus absorbed into himself the consequences of our evil. And and for for those of you who, who prefer to be responsible and accountable for your own corruption and existence and bear those consequences on your own, God will let you. But he pleads with you not to. But rather to accept that there is one who has gone before you. And taken onto himself flesh and blood like ours. And also took into himself your evil. So that he could rescue you from it. So that you could become what he is. And what he is, is the future of the universe. He passed through death, overcoming it resurrected from the dead, glorified as the Bible tells us the first fruits of the new creation. And he will transform the universe in the same way, the same universe, but a radically different one, a gloriously transformed creation in more ways than we can imagine. But the most notable way is what Peter points out. The the defining mark is that it is perfect righteousness. It's why Peter says it is where righteousness dwells. And it's nearly unfathomable for us sinners to think of a world untainted by sin. I mean, what is, what is varied blessings without coveting? What is ambition without selfishness? What is true, true preference for the other rather than ourselves? It's hard to imagine but we will sit, taste this sweet purity one day when our Lord comes again. And now if this is our hope, what sort of people ought we to be? That's what I want to turn our attention to now. And what I want us to see is that waiting for this hope, it conquers both kinds of hopelessness. There are two kinds of hopelessness. The kind of hopelessness that that despairs, which is usually what we mean when we talk of someone being hopeless. But there's another kind that we don't generally think of as hopeless, but it is. And that's this restless, hurried clamor of busyness that marks those who lack an eternal hope, but, but try to fill the hole with temporary, fleeting, and uncertain hopes. The person who made this connection for me, the connection between uh, anxious activity and hopelessness was surprisingly Billy Joel, the great Billy Joel. His song, his, song, uh, his best song, Vienna. 
in, in my opinion, but it is a jam. It's great. But uh, I've been listening to it way too much as I work on my house. But he's, in that song, Vienna, he's giving wisdom to his younger self, basically. And he says, slow down, you crazy child. You're so ambitious for a juvenile. But then if you're so smart, then tell me, why are you still so afraid? Where's the fire? What's the hurry about? You better cool it off before you burn it out. You've got so much to do and only so many hours in a day. Too bad, but it's the life you lead. You're so ahead of yourself that you forgot what you need. And the chorus says, when will you realize? Vienna waits for you. Vienna is a metaphor for the rest of your life, a kind of secular hope for Mr. Billy Joel. And the key insight, though, is this, that he points that this young man's desperate ambition, his frenetic busyness, are caused by not realizing that something significant awaits him. And Peter says the same thing, that there is something far more significant awaiting you. And if you truly grasp what is coming, you won't clamor for acquiring and achieving the way the rest of the world does. If we understand our great hope, we will radically reprioritize our values. So many of the things that you are consumed in the pursuit of will be burned up, he says. We fill our lives with things that are not going to last. But there are things that you can build your life around that will endure into the new world. C.T. Studd was a missionary who wrote a poem that has a well-known refrain. You may know it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And C.T. Studd was one of what became known as the Cambridge Seven, young men who gave up great cultural status and wealth and, and promising futures to join Hudson Taylor in his missionary endeavors to China which God used in extraordinary ways because when they first went 155 years ago, there were only 100,000 Christians in China. Now there are over 150 million, in part because of how these men planted and others watered and as God gave the growth. But C.T. Studd was probably the most notable of, of those seven because he was the greatest cricket player of his day and was heir to a, a large fortune, which he gave away. It would be like LeBron James giving up basketball to become a missionary to an unreached people and giving away all of his wealth before he did. C.T. Studd wrote that poem explaining his perspective that moved him to make such surprising life decisions. Let me read you a little bit more of it. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and, and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I'll, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He knew what would make it through and what would be burned up. And he chose wisely 
to invest his life in what would last. He was waiting on the Lord. His waiting influenced his choices, his priorities, the pace and structure of his life. And it may not be what we first think of when we think of waiting, but this is a part of all waiting. I mean, if, if you are waiting on someone to make your favorite meal, if you're wise, you choose not to snack on whatever mediocre junk is laying around. Because you know, as one of my culinary school teachers taught me, that hunger is the best spice. Because it, when you're waiting on something, you see, it shapes how you act. It shapes your, your priorities, your decisions. It shapes your life. C.T. Studd is a good picture of this. He's a good picture of, of repentance. This is repentance. Turning your back on other things as you turn to fully face Jesus and orient your life toward Christ. I think this is what he means when he says to hasten the coming of the Lord in this text. I mean, there's, there's a lot that could be said about what, it means, what he means by that. But, but from the context... Peter does say that the reason God is delaying his coming is because of his patience. Look at what he says in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if repentance is what God is patiently pursuing before he comes, I think for us to be living in line with the hope of his coming would be to live lives of repentance. Those of you who have never turned your back on sin and selfishness to trust in Jesus and hope in Him alone, He invites you to do that today. For those of you who have, let us prayerfully seek the repentance of those who don't know Jesus, but also let us remember and, and, and know that when Jesus calls us to repentance, He calls us to a life of repentance. We can easily get caught up in the here and now and lose sight of our hope. We turn our, the waiting room into our living room. And we forget that we are waiting and start looking to other things until we get so ahead of ourselves that we forget what we need, as Billy Joel would say. So in light of our hope, what sort of people ought we to be? The kind of people that we ought to be are the kind who repent, and prioritize what will last. Or as Peter says, living lives of holiness and godliness, being diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. This is the remedy to the first kind of hopelessness, the restless kind. The second kind of hopelessness is the despairing kind, the kind that's fed up and impatient. Peter says a little earlier in this chapter that there are going to be scoffers who say, where is the promise of his coming? And the first thing that he does in response to this is to point out something very important, that fast and slow are subjective terms. What I mean is, every, like Evergreen and I, my daughter, we were running through the hallway this week racing, and she kept saying, Evergreen, fast. Evergreen, really fast. And she is, she is really fast. She's about, I would say, about as fast as John Shaw's walking pace. Have you ever seen that guy walk? He walks everywhere with purpose. But when I run at my full speed, Evergreen seems pretty slow, because Jay fast. Jay really fast. But 
there might be, I don't know, there might be one or two people in this world who might even make me look slow. Because fast and slow are subjective terms. And that's important to remember. That God has a vastly different perspective on history and on our lives than we do. And we must believe and trust that his vantage point is better than ours. And as we grow in that trust, it gives us patience and perseverance and joyful hope. What sort of people ought we to be as we wait on the Lord? We ought to be patient people because we trust that God's timing and perspective are, we trust in his more than we trust our own. The idea of patience is closely related to the idea of waiting. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 40, starts out like this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. But notice that patience does not mean simply being resigned to the way things are, right? He was crying out to the Lord, he says. He doesn't see that as a contradiction with patience. Because patience is not just sticking your head in the sand. It's a mark of waiting on the Lord. Patience, as I understand it, is a peninsula. If you remember from geography, a peninsula is a piece of land with water on three sides. And we can understand patience by understanding those three bodies of water. The first is the impulse to take the situation into our own hands. The second is cynicism and bitterness. The third is despair and discouragement. When facing a situation that is less than ideal, patience is that extension of the Holy Spirit, is fruit of the Holy Spirit, that keeps us from those temptations, that keeps us on dry land. We are called to walk on dry land, facing inland, but we often diverge into one of these seas where there's danger of being carried off. Remember what he said our hope was? A new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Righteousness and justice are the same word in Greek. We are waiting for God's justice to prevail. We are waiting for him to to make the wrong things right. So we don't need to go swimming in these surrounding seas. Let me look at each one of them a little bit more, uh, but still briefly, just to, to understand what patience is. Psalm 40, I think he was addressing that first body of water, the impulse to take the situation into our own hands. That's why he combines waiting patiently with crying out to the Lord. Waiting for the Lord before it means anything else ought to mean seeking God's will first. Seeking his counsel and his work on our behalf through prayer and supplication and thanksgiving and seeking him before we attempt to solve the problem on our own. And as we do that, it will orient our hearts to live in his way rather than our, in our own fallen reactionary instincts. Because in our fallen instincts, we react from our anxiety. We react from our hurt and our pain. And we say things like, I will repay evil. But Proverbs 20, tells us how waiting on the Lord changes that. It says, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Waiting on the Lord allows you to face being wronged without lashing out. This is the rare and beautiful fruit of patience that is the mark of Christian waiting. Now, the second body of water surrounding us is cynicism 
and bitterness. That's what Peter is addressing when he says there will be scoffers saying, where is the promise of his coming? Everything's just going on the way it always has. When we live so long in a fallen world and face all of the brokenness and evil day in and day out, if we're not waiting on the Lord, our hearts can harden and we can become bitter and cynical. We become closed off scoffers rather than open-hearted waiters. But when Peter is addressing the doctrine of these scoffers, he warns us not to get sucked in to that cynical unbelief. Down in verse 17, he says, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Don't be carried away by the waves of bitterness and hard-heartedness, but stand on the stable ground of patience and waiting on the Lord. And how does he help us be patient? By reminding us of the patience of God himself. That God has good purposes in this situation. And he tells us in verse 15 to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Now that's a different perspective. God is not absent. He doesn't have his back turned. He is working diligently and patiently for the eternal good of his beloved. And he calls us to wait on him patiently by trusting in his own patience. Now this third body of water is despair. Because when, when unfairness and injustice and sin and suffering come, we are often tempted to despair and discouragement. And as I've been thinking about that uh, the last few weeks, I, I keep being drawn back to chapter 7 uh, of the prophet Micah. Um, I, re- I referenced it a couple weeks ago in my sermon briefly, but in that chapter, he begins that chapter with, with great lament about the, the devastating brokenness and lostness of the wreckage of the world around him and evil. He says, it, both within him and around him, he says, he begins that chapter by saying, Woe is me! And in another verse, he says, The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. Their hands are on evil to do it well. And he goes on like that for a while. This bleak lament. And then in verse 7, he says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait For the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. He's lamenting. He's lamenting over the state of the world and over the state of his own sinful heart. But he responds to this despair by saying, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. We can name the pain and be honest about our struggles. Jesus can take it. But we also can lay claim to the confidence that comes from waiting on our good and powerful, and patient God. And in that, there is strength. 
To the faint-hearted, God says in Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Our pain in this life, it's not the, it's, it's not the pain of homelessness, it's the pain of homesickness. The two types of hopelessness I mentioned earlier, the restless kind and the despairing kind, they are really two kinds of spiritual homelessness. One that's fooling itself by busily trying to build a house of cards. Some people make some pretty nice ones. But there's the other kind that realizes their sad state. But we have a home. And it is coming. And our activity in this life, it's not building a worthless and temporary shelter, but it's getting ready for our permanent one. And our pain is not the bleak realization that we have no home, but instead it's mere homesickness for the one we know we do have. I've had many points in my life where I was homesick, including the first year I moved back here from Nashville. And I frequently prayed this prayer from from the book of Every Moment Holy, uh, which is a a wonderful little collection of of liturgies. And I want to share this prayer with you uh, because it's blessed me so much and helped me to wait on the Lord with patience. I won't read you the entire thing, but I do want to read an extended portion of it. He prays, Homesickness is indeed a holy thing, Lord, like the slow burning of an immortal beacon set ablaze to bid us onward. The shape of that ache for another time and place is the imprint of eternity on our souls. So let those sorrows do their work in me, O God. Let them stir such yearnings as would fix my journey forward toward that place for which I've always pined. O my soul, have there not always been signs? O my soul, were we not born with hearts on fire before we were old enough to even know why songs and waves and starlight so stirred us? Had we not already tiptoed to the edge of that vast sadness, bright and good, and felt ourselves somehow stricken with a sickness unto life? Hardly had we ventured from our yards when we felt ourselves so strangely far from something, and somewhere that we despaired of ever reaching, that we turned to hide the welling of our eyes. We knew it, even then, as the opening of a, wor- of a wound this world cannot repair. The first birthing of that weight every soul must wake up to alone because it is the burden of that wild and lonely space that only God and his eternity can fill. And as we wait, this sacred homesick sorrow works in us to cultivate faith that knows one day he will. That is the holy work of homesickness, to teach our hearts how lonely they have always been for God. So let these sighs and tears, Lord Christ, prepare me for that better gladness that will be mine. Let all your children learn to grieve well in this life, knowing that we are not just being homesick. We are letting sorrow carve the spaces in our souls that joy will one day fill. Holy Spirit, bless our grief and seal our hearts until that day. Amen. I pray that prayer for all of us as we await our coming Lord, that we would not grieve as those without hope. We have hope. Theologians, you know, they're always coming up with what they say is the best way to think about the story of the Bible. And I love it. It's almost always enlightening. 
uh, and they almost always convince me, uh, of their different perspectives. And I, they're all great. Some people say it's the theme of covenant. Some people say it's the theme of, of kingdom. Uh, one that I find really stirring is the theme of exile and homecoming. Because that explains our longings. That as humanity, we have been exiled from our true home. And Jesus is bringing us back. This explains our homesickness. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis talked about these homesick longings. He said, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. He's saying we idolize the past or other good things, and then we despair when they are gone. And to break this inevitable cycle, we have to see the goodness of this life as pointers to the new creation for which we are waiting. And then, though we ache at times, we rejoice. We rejoice in hope because, as Isaiah says, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. That he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So what sort of people ought we to be? We ought to be the sort of people who wait on the Lord. With patience. And with proper priorities. On Thanksgiving, I was reading Evergreen, a children's book, a short little illustrated children's book called Jesus and the Very Big Surprise. Uh, and we loved it. And it aligned with this message so much that I thought I'd close by sharing, sharing it with you. Most of it, anyway. I won't, uh, you won't see the illustration, so you can go buy it and see, look at those. But uh, this is my very slightly abridged version. But this is how we'll close. The book, it, it retells Jesus' parable of the waiting servants from Luke 12. The book starts by saying, Jesus always surprises everybody. Even though he's the maker of the universe, surprise, he came to earth as a little baby. And when he grew up, he, he surprised people. He loved telling people stories about what God is like. So he told a story about God's love that would surprise everybody, even you. The story of servants waiting for their important master to come home from a big wedding. It was their job to watch and wait and be ready for the moment that their master would return. And they had a lot of work to do, to prepare. And even when he got home, they would, they'd be ready to, to, to serve him a snack and fluff his pillow and bring him his best robe and read him a bedtime story. But until then, they wait and they wait and they wait until finally the master returns. But the servants are in for a big surprise. Come and rest says the master. You must be tired from waiting up for me. Come, sit down at my table. I will serve you. I know just what you need. In Jesus' story, the master loves his servants so much that he puts on servants' clothes and serves them instead. What kind of master would love like that? What kind of God would choose to be a servant? Surprise! 
Jesus would. He is the great master who serves. Like the master in the story, Jesus surprised everybody by using his power to serve. He suffered and died on a cross so that we could live with him forever. But Jesus still had one more very big surprise. He came alive again and went back to his Father and sent his Holy Spirit to stay with us until he returns. Nobody knows when he'll return. It could happen any minute. Just like those servants, we have a lot to do while we wait. There's hungry people to serve, lonely people to care for, friends to share with, enemies to forgive, and it all begins with loving Jesus, the great master who serves. He knows what we need because he is what we need. So get ready. The master is coming. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we know that we are called to be a certain kind of people. Not just do certain things, but actually have a kind of heart and soul that is shaped by you. We need you to do this work in us. We ask you to do this work in us. We believe you will do this work in us by your Spirit. May we live in step with your Spirit through repentance, turning from worthless and temporary things and toward your eternal glory. Give us comfort and joy knowing that you love to act for those who wait on you. May we wait on you with patience and endurance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.